Hello and welcome to F1 in Review. There's no racing to be discussed today. We'll all have to wait until this weekend for our latest dose of Formula 1 action. This comes at Silverstone, who, like Austria, will play host to a doubleheader of race weekends this season. As ever, I'm joined by Angus, Tristan and Liv. And this week, we'll be discussing the latest Formula 1 news, the developments and talking points that have materialised over the last week or so. Let's get started. Sebastian Vettel's gone into Max Verstappen and under braking Leclerc has gone into the barriers at the penultimate turn Perez ahead of Stroll, ahead of Ricardo behind, oh it's a tight finish it's a photo finish adding another championship to his collection it's Lewis Hamilton champion of the world uh, so first of all, Ferrari have announced they will be restructuring their team's technical departments with immediate effect. Uh, the head of aerodynamics, Enric Cardiel, will lead a newly created performance development department. There will also be more prominent roles for the 76-year-old South African, Rory Byrne, a man widely regarded as one of the greatest designers of a Formula One car over the last 30 years. After his stint as Ferrari's chief designer, between 1996 and 2006, a period where the Italian team won six Constructors' Championships and five Driver Championships. Uh, while Rory is still currently involved in the team today in some capacity, he has moved into a more background role after his, quote, semi-retirement from the sport in 2006 and was given the role of Design and Development Consultant, a role which has seen him play an integral role in designing Ferrari's 2007 car, which finished second in the Constructors' Championship after Formula 1 introduced a major regulatory change uh, which resulted in a stark, often mandatory changes to the size and shape of all cars' rear wings, nose cones and diffusers, to name a few. And now, similarly to 2017, Bern will now focus on designing Ferrari's car for the 2022 season after F1 will again be introducing arguably the sport's biggest regulatory change for decades, which will see the implementation of an entirely new aerodynamic approach, which aims to create closer and more competitive racing on track and more generally. Uh, the team boss of Ferrari, Mattia Bonotto, said these aforementioned reforms were designed to, quote, speed up the design and development of on the car performance fronts. In addition, Ferrari also said in a statement they were instituting a chain of command that is more focused and simplified and provides the heads of each department the necessary powers to achieve their objectives. Uh, this restructuring will see the creation of a more vertical organisation process and clearly assign responsibility to individuals with within the team itself. Uh, Ferrari have previously been operating with a flatter management structure with shared team responsibility, but have abandoned this idea in favour of structures adopted by their rivals of Mercedes and Red Bull Racing to ensure this time around and in the future that specific people are now clearly in charge of specific areas of the team. This will likely see the introduction of roles such as technical director and chief technical officer. Um, I'm not too sure if you've all heard about these changes, these developments. Um, what do you think of them firstly? Do you see these reforms as a, a knee-jerk reaction to a very poor start of the season from Ferrari? We've spoken in previous episodes, they've been roughly a second behind Mercedes. 
whether or not these changes are actually quite pragmatic in nature and well overdue insofar that Ferrari have historically been a very proud team in what they've done. They've always done it the Ferrari way. Do you think, therefore, that these changes are essential if Ferrari are truly going to be competitive for the Constructors' Championship anytime soon, namely in 2022? Um, yeah, Tom, it's probably a knee-jerk reaction, as you suggested, but I think it may be a necessary one. It clearly... You know, clearly they need a change in direction there at the team. And obviously they've stated they think they do have the correct and the right personnel, but clearly they're not perhaps in the right positions. So with that switch around, I think it has been made because of what we have seen so far this season. And I think that they are clearly realising and clearly accepting the fact that things are not right. And as you mentioned, the history of some of those Ferrari cars, they should be better. So what step can they take that isn't too drastic that switch around the team? And I think it's going to be interesting to see what effect this has. From from what I've read, Tom, it's it sounds like what Ferrari are saying now is, hey, look at what's gone in the last two years in Ferrari. We don't really know who's managing what. It's a bit spaghettified with everyone fighting over each other's roles. It's not clearly defined and therefore things aren't getting done and that's what they're going to change. Now, I know that they've said that they wanted a clear change of direction to create lines of responsibility. And that perhaps feeds into the this idea that Ferrari aren't doing very well because there's no one accountable for parts. Again, though, I don't, ne- I don't necessarily know if it'll make much of a difference because it seems like Ferrari still managed to push out quite a good car um, last year and the year before that, doesn't matter if it was in the regulations or not, the car was still pretty good. Um, Whether or not this will make much of of a difference in the future, well, only time will tell from that. Ferrari have said that they don't believe they're going to be competitive this year or next year, and it's only the year after that that they are going to be competitive, which is actually in line with what we were saying in the first episode, I do believe. So it sounds to me like Ferrari are perhaps adopting much more of a Mercedes-style approach and or the Red Bull-style approach where you have you know hierarchy and lots of different managers. There is, however, a problem with that sort of uh, management system whereby if you always have, you have a clear hierarchy, then sometimes the part of the buck gets passed down. Um, for example, Haas, it seems like, has a bit of an issue where you have Gene Haas at the top and everyone else is there, his sort of underling, and which is managed by the team principal. And as a result, you get this sort of element of a fear factor where you have to keep the boss happy. Um, so if you have a system like that, then you know that, that can cause its own problems. So just because Ferrari is changing its system doesn't mean it's going to solve all of its issues. Because again, a solid hierarchy with a manager and then a, a higher manager, then a chief technical officer, which is just a manager again, just means sometimes that you get passing of the buck and then eventually a scapegoat at the bottom. So I don't know whether or not this makes a difference. I do hope it does, though, for this, the future of Ferrari. I'd say that is Ferrari in a situation where they've almost they got to try something to try and like initiate some change, some like upturning performance. Like Tristan said, they've already admitted that because of the carryover of the 2020 regulations into 2021, basically means that both this year and next year are arguably write-offs for Ferrari, and they're going to have to settle for being in the upper midfield as opposed to challenging 
uh, Mercedes and maybe Red Bull for the championships. So I guess in that, that case, they've almost got 18 months and, until uh, the new car with the new regulations has rolled out. They've got that 18 months period to sort of try stuff, to try and restructure things, re like rebalance things and see what works. So may I would not be surprised if this was the first of whilst they, they claim that they are sort of going forward with a new strategy of management and like Tom said with the flatter management structure. Um, I wouldn't be surprised to be honest if this was the first of many changes over the next 18 months as they try and work out the, what the best way is to get the, sort of get the best technical sort of team combination and a hierarchy combination try and get their car back to the top. Um, Ferrari are, are ones that are known for drastic change in the past. If you think of one thing that comes to mind is the 2014 season where they had three team principals in one. They started off with Stefano Domenicali and when the car came out in the new hybrid era and it was rubbish, they brought in Marco Mattiacci. He barely lasted six months before Maurizio Rivabeni came in. So they are known for, that is one example of their sort of knee-jerk changes they've done in the past. But... Um, so it would not surprise me if more changes uh, such as those came about in the next 18 months or so whilst they tried to uh, work out what the best strategy was. And it'll be interesting to see if the uh, changes they've made right now will make any difference. I've got a small question about whether or not you think uh, Matteo Bonotto is under pressure. Under pressure from who? As in of being fired. I, I don't know. I'd say that he's all, like he's a Ferrari boss, so he's always under pressure. So I guess that's... Yeah, I think the answer is it's always going to be yeah, because it's Formula One. <laughs> Make sure you include that part, yeah. Uh, <laughs> I will. <laughs> this is this is what the listener tunes in for. <laughs> yeah, he's always under pressure, mate. Yeah. <laughs> oh, decent. Um, uh, the Monaco Grand Prix is the oldest race weekend in the F1 calendar, having hosted its first Grand Prix in 1929. Due to its history and unique uh, street circuit style, it is widely considered to be one of the most important and some say prestigious race in the entire world. However, thanks to the global nature of the COVID-19 health pandemic, there has been no Monaco Grand Prix of 2020. Some people will see the cancellation of this Grand Prix as a good thing, while others will see it as the biggest casualty of the racing calendar so far. Um, Tristan, you're here to tell us more about this historic track and the history of it. I am here to tell you a bit more about this track. And, dear listener, I must admit, I do feel a bit nervous doing a history segment, given that two of my colleagues here, namely Tom and Olivia, are now qualified historians uh, from a prestigious UK university, and therefore I feel like I'm going to be judged on the historical content that I'm about to deliver. So, be kind, people. So I'd like you to cast your minds back, if you can, to 1929. As Tom, you said, the first Monaco Grand Prix was held. Now, the Monaco Grand Prix was built within the old streets of Monaco in a very similar layout to the track that we know today. Back in 1929, however, safety was not such of a highlighted issue, and the track did have some very interesting things, including having drivers bare left as they came out of the tunnel, and this section of the track, still named Chicane de Port, was required to to allow the track to run alongside the harbour. Now, this bend was notorious, as drivers had to thread through the gap between the right-hand side of the track wall and the sheer drop into the water on the left. Now getting this wrong and either impacting into the wall or the water would end up in a near certain death for the driver. The race however 
did not lead to any fatalities, and the Bugatti raced by William Grover Williams won the first ever Grand Prix held in Monaco. So I guess we could say that Williams won the first Monaco Grand Prix. Quickly, the track found its fame due to its tight twists and turns, hairpins, tunnels, and its location by the Mediterranean. As it became around in many early motor racing calendars, including the European Championship, post-World War II, modern Formula One as we know it emerged, and yet again Monaco was added to the calendar. With the track retaining most of its original features, including the fast chicane after the tunnel, the slow hairpin corner, the run up the hill at the start after the start finish straight, and its position next to the harbour. The circuit immediately gained further reputation for getting the most out of the driver, with names such as Fangio, Sterling Moss, Graham Hill and Jackie Stewart all winning the Monaco Grand Prix in the 1950s and 60s. The 1960s, however, highlighted the danger that motor racing posed to its drivers, with 14 deaths occurring between 1960 and 1969. One of those occurring at the 1967 Monaco Grand Prix was when Lorenzo Bandini, another famous name, crashed his Ferrari during the race. It's important to note that the 14 deaths were just in the Formula 1 race weekends. Other drivers such as Jim Clark, who died in the 1960s, died at a Formula 2 race at Hockenheim, so it was common at the time for drivers to race in different leagues. This explains why he, for example, isn't counted within my findings. Consequently, in the 1970s, a consortium of drivers led by Jackie Stewart pushed for an increase in safety measures, and the track was somewhat modified to put barriers in places around the track. This meant that if drivers went off the road, instead of hitting a nearby tree or a building or even people, they might be caught by the barriers instead. During the 1970s, the track was also modified so that the original chicane, the death trap, was moved forward and modified to look more like the chicane that we know today, far less dangerous. The area that we know as swimming pool was built with an additional chicane placed in to avoid that area, and finally the pits were moved to their current location. Apart from a small disagreement about television rights in 1985, which nearly struck Monaco off the Formula 1 calendar for good, Monaco remained essentially unchanged with further drivers such as Senna, Mansell and Prost winning at the track. Furthermore, with Monaco being a tax haven, drivers began living in, in the state in order to gain full access to their extraordinary pay and to live their lavish lifestyles. Something which still remains true today, with one in three people living on Monaco being millionaires. Continuing on towards the modern day, we have seen racing greats such as Schumacher and Damon Hill race at Monaco, Formula One household names such as David Coulthard and Martin Brundle also racing there, and with Monaco proving to still be a classic F1 favourite, in 2010 Bernie Eccleston signed a 10-year agreement to have Monaco in the calendar until at least 2020. However, the track has not really evolved over time. In fact, it cannot really evolve that much due to its position. For example, a modern Formula 1 track length should be 3.5 kilometres at a minimum. However, Monaco falls under that at just 3.3 kilometres. Furthermore, not only is the track far too short really to handle modern Formula 1 speeds, but it's also far too thin. One analogy from Nelson Piquet 
suggested that it's like riding a bicycle around your living room. This tight track, therefore, makes overtaking nearly impossible for drivers leading to the qualifying de facto displaying the race results. This might be best highlighted recently by the 2018 race when Daniel Ricciardo won the race without his electric regenerative system working on the car. This meant that he was severely disadvantaged when racing. However, as this occurred at Monaco, he was still able to defend his position against Sebastian Vettel to take first place. As Tom, you said earlier, this year we don't have a Monaco Grand Prix. With COVID-19 cancelling the historic Grand Prix, we are instead visiting other locations such as, such as Imola and the Nürburgring. And I don't believe that we're really missing out that much from Monaco, with race being, in my opinion, relatively boring, as the track is difficult to overtake at, and I think maybe it's time to place Monaco into semi-retirement. After all, we're nearly at the track's 100th anniversary. So this year, we're seeing other historic locations being added to the calendar, and perhaps this might be the way forward for Formula 1. Instead of having a yearly Monaco Grand Prix, why not alternate the track with other locations, keeping the calendar fresh each year, and perhaps having a classic Monaco Grand Prix every two to three years, thus allowing other historical tracks to be placed into the season without the season expanding in length and getting too long. So I want to know what you think. Is it time to get rid of Monaco completely? Should we alternate the track with other tracks? Or should it remain as a mainstay for the season, as a fixed race circuit for us all to enjoy into the future? I mean, I, I have to agree with you, Tristan. I find Monaco incredibly boring. Um, it's always been said that it's the jewel of the calendar, that we should give it unbridled respect because of its history. But the actual spectacle is, as you say, more of a procession rather than competitive racing. I mean, it would be no surprise to people that over the last five or six years, maybe even ten years, the top three who have qualified largely remain the top three, but maybe in a different order. Now, if that doesn't say to me and say to everybody who watches this race that basically it's all about qualifying, i.e. more about speed than technical ability and race ability, then I'm not too sure what will. I mean, take the 2019 uh, race as an example. Lewis Hamilton was saying to his team that his tyres were about to fall off a cliff. They're absolute shots. There was no way he could keep, I believe it was Max Verstappen, behind him on an ordinary circuit. However, because of the actual width of a Formula 1 car and insofar that there's so few overtaking opportunities, he could essentially just keep Verstappen behind him and win the race. I mean, maybe I'm a bit cynical. I don't really care if we never see a Monaco Grand Prix ever again. Well, I'm, I'm going to politely disagree with uh, Tristan and Tom. I think that I, I, I can see the, the arguments they are saying in one way. The Monaco Grand Prix... Um, Maybe in recent years it's got a bit repetitive in that it does seem that the overtaking opportunities, if there were any in the first place, have maybe sort of dwindled a bit. But I, I am certainly, I am, I'm sure I'm not alone in uh, a bunch of F1 fans who look forward to Monaco every single year. I think the fact that these guys can race on a circuit such as this with the walls very close to their cars, the fact they are literally racing through not just a city but a whole principality they're literally racing pretty much the length of the country effectively that's how cool the monaco grand prix is and you think of all the iconic corners is, as the, the drivers go down to sandavot up through the twisting curves of uh, massonet and down is the lowes hairpin the slowest corner in formula one and then 
cruising along the uh, the Mediterranean, going through the tunnel and Athens to Chicane, and then other iconic corner names such as Portier and La Rascas, um, the swimming pool Chicane, Antony Noge, etc. I just think that there's so much history behind behind that. Is it, sorry, Angus? Is history enough to keep a race? If it's yeah. if cars are only ever going to get wider and overtaking is only going to get worse, is it in Formula One? acceptable to judge the merits on a track with cars that are no longer and drivers that no longer race in the season the history the history no, I, don't, I, I don't know i don't know i don't know i sort of have a, oh i would say i'm somewhere in the middle between <laughs> between angus and um tom i i do see the point that perhaps it may not need to be on the calendar every year anymore so i'm agreeing with the fact that perhaps it could be taken off on some years however i would hate like angus to see monaco completely gone from the future of formula one like monaco as we know like the grand prix at monaco is considered one of like the most special and most prestigious motorsport events in the world you know alongside the likes of the indy 500 and le mans 24 hour they're the three they're the three big races and i think despite perhaps the or the dullness of the race that you guys may perceive at the end of the day it's such an iconic event and i i do see that it as more than a race because it brings in a larger audience and a larger interest into the sport in my opinion there are certainly individuals who would either go to or watch or be in somewhere involved in the monaco grand prix that would not be involved in other races and because of that it is bringing more people uh, into the sphere of formula one that we love and I think as well, if I were to speak to someone I know who doesn't know anything about Formula One, a lot of them are likely to have perhaps heard of Silverstone and perhaps heard of Monaco. And I would hate for that spectacle that does bring in interest and bring in an audience and probably brings, well, we know it's not probably, and brings a lot of money as well. And yes, they're currently very rich already, but it's great to see teams and the sport getting money because we see better racing. So... It, for me, it has too many positives to be taken off. But yeah, perhaps we could mix up because there are so many other exciting tracks out there that do result in spectacular racing. Um, but, you know, come on, we can't get rid of the Monaco Grand Prix. Well, I suppose only time will tell whether or not they stick with it for an extended period. I think I think they will just because the money. That's li- like I can literally just, yeah, just with that. I agree. I agree. And because of the history, mate. Anyway, courtesy of the number of COVID-19 cases continuing to fall in Europe, and with no second spike to speak of on the continent, Formula One has announced four new races to the 2020 calendar. Angus, you've been keeping a close eye on these new additions to this unique F1 calendar of 2020. What have you found, and what can you tell us? Yeah, so as you say, four new editions, uh, four new European editions, which have effectively replaced. So there was the other announcement to go with the uh, announcement of these four new races. Um, it came out that the four races in the Americas, so that is Austin in America, uh, Brazil into Lagos, uh, Montreal in Canada, and the Mexican Grand Prix. All four of those were cancelled uh, this week, mainly due to the really, really high amount of COVID-19 cases in those four countries. So that has been replaced by four new races. Uh, we'll go through them one by one. So first up, we have Mugello. So for those of you who don't know, Mugello is another track in Italy, like Monza, like other famous ones like Imola as well, which we'll go get onto later. 
Mugello has a sort of small linked history with Formula One. It's never actually been used as a Formula One circuit. It's more uh, related to motorcycle racing, with MotoGP having hosted a race there every year since 1994. F1 cars have tested there once in May 2012 for an in-season test. And at the time, many drivers commented on their love for the circuit. Got a quote here from Mark Webber at the time, who drove for Red Bull, saying, Driving around Mugello for 10 laps is the same as driving around a thousand laps of Abu Dhabi in terms of satisfaction. And those kinds of comments were echoed throughout the paddock by the drivers who really enjoyed the fast, high-octane challenge that the circuit brings. Commenting on the circuit itself, so it's got 14 turns. Uh, if you watch onboard laps of Formula 1 cars online, it looks like it could be a very, very, very fast circuit. And there's one particular section from turn 6 through to turn 10, which is a right-left and then two fast, what should be flat-out left corners, the Arabiatas, the Arabiata 1, Arabiata 2. So it has to be said that this track could be very, very flat-out. We could see some very high speeds. The Formula 1 cars of 2012 lapped the circuit in 1 minute 21. If you think of how much faster the F1 cars of modern-day times are, that could, we could see a lap time in the low 1 minute 10, so it could be a very, very high-octane challenge. This is the, fast, the amount of fast corners is combined with a 1.1 kilometer main straight, which should be prime for overtaking opportunities. You think you can get a nice slingshot out of the long final hairpin onto the pit straight. So it should be a good track for racing. I can certainly see Mercedes thriving here uh, due to the amount of high downforce corners, but I imagine as well the rest of the racing in the, uh, in the mid-pack and in the upper mid-pack should be very, very interesting indeed. This will be known as the Tuscan Grand Prix. So that is going to be held in mid-September, a week after the Italian Grand Prix, which is at Monza, of course. Shortly after that, we're moving on to an old favourite, uh, the Nürburgring. So the Nürburgring has, as some of you may know, hosted 40 Grand Prix in the history of the World Championship on three different layouts. The famous Nordschleife, a uh, very dangerous, arguably the best race track in the world, but way too dangerous for modern F1 times. And then since 1984, Two different layouts on the smaller GP circuit, about 5.2 kilometers. Um, the Nürburgring itself has always been quite a popular race for drivers. However, it disappeared off the calendar in recent years. Uh, financial difficulties for both it and the Hockenheim in the 2000s meant that the tracks alternated the German Grand Prix up until the year 2013, when Nürburgring has disappeared off the calendar completely due to those finance said financial difficulties. Um, so it's a track which has has history and some of the drivers for example Sebastian Vettel, Lewis Hamilton, um, even Daniel Ricciardo as well, Valtteri Bottas in their younger years would have raced on this track back in 2013 so the teams that means as well the teams will have some sort of data on this track having raced it quite recently even though a, a, seven years is a long time in Formula One so a lot will have changed. One interesting point to point out is this race, these European races, the latter ones at least, are going to be very unusual. That It's been a very long time since European races have been held in October. So this race will be the 9th to the 11th of October. Definitely raises the possibility that there could be some very, very interesting weather conditions. The Nürburgring is in the Eiffel Mountains in Germany. And similar to Spa, has quite a diverse microclimate. And in the past has been known for... Due to, the, due to the length of the circuit, there to be absolute thunderstorms at one end, but then bright sunshine at the other, making uh, possible strategy decisions with tyres in mixed weather conditions very difficult indeed. So seeing that would be very, very interesting. There may even be the possibility 
due to historical weather conditions in the Eiffel Mountains, we could see snow at a Formula One race for the first time ever. There was no precedent for F1 cars ever having to deal with that. So it could be a very interesting prospect indeed. And that's the second of the four races to have been added to the calendar. Third one is at the Portimao circuit in Portugal. So Portugal has hosted Formula One race 16 times in the past. It was last hosted at a track called Estoril in 1996. But Estoril has not been considered on this occasion. Instead, Portimao has been considered, maybe due to the fact it's a more modern circuit. Um, it was partially designed by the great F1 track designer, Herman Tilke, who's put his imprint on many tracks on the current calendar. It was only finished in 2008, so it's a very, it's a new purpose-built racing facility with very modern facilities, very in very good condition, you'd have to say. And F1 cars have run there before. They ran a pre-season test in 2009. And some of the current drivers have raced here in junior formulae. For example, Charles Leclerc raced here in European Formula 3 in 2015. Uh, Daniel Ricciardo has raced here in Formula Renault 3.5 all the way back in 2011. Um, in terms of the track itself, it has many characteristics to the Circuit de Catalunya in Spain. I saw a description of the Circuit de Catalunya as it looks like someone, if you take the top half of someone's body when they're flexing their arms, Portugal kind of looks similar in that it's got a very long straight at the bottom, which should be prime for overtaking, by the way. And it's also got lots of tight corners, but also quite long corners. The final corner is an Indianapolis-esque long right-hand curved corner without the banking that is so famous at Indianapolis. But this pit straight that I talk about, very long, one kilometre long roughly, could be fantastic for some overtaking, especially if they use the turn one. Uh, they've got two different layouts at turn one, one of which includes a right-left-right right chicane um, after a very downhill section. So that could be a very, very interesting braking zone. That is the other thing to mention about this track in that I've never, in terms of undulation, I haven't seen much like it in terms of the variety of undulation on the circuit. Um, other circuits that come to mind that have a similar level would be Nürburgring and also Spa. If you think of the elevation changes at Spa, for example, the plunge down to Eau Rouge, followed by the massive rise up through Radion, the Portimao circuit kind of has similar elevation changes in that it just, you come out of one corner, all of a sudden the track just rises up and then you go over a, over a brown to a big downhill section. So that could definitely be something, it would be, quite a sight to see the F1 cars go over these uh, different patches of tarmac with different varying uh, undulations. And then on to the final one, the return of a very famous Formula 1 track. Uh, it will be known as the Emiliana Romagna Grand Prix, as that is the region that the Imola circuit is in. So Imola hosted 27 Grand Prix under the title of the San Marino GP from 1980 to 2006. Has held a place has previously held a place as second Ferrari's second home race. The Tifosi would used to come out here with as, almost as much sports they would as Mon, as they would at Monza, um, and has some incredibly famous corner names such as Tamburello, where Ayrton Senna and Roland Ratzeberger were sadly killed in 1994. Um, other corners such as the very fast downhill double right hander of Acque Minerali, and also the double Rivazza left hand turns at the end of the lap. In terms of what to expect with this one. The track hasn't been used since 2006. However, there has been a small change, which gives, um, gives some optimistic hope in terms of good racing that may occur. It used to be that the, so the, the straight, what we call the pit straight, was sort of divided into two. It was cut, off, cut into two by a chicane just before the pit entry. However, said chicane has since been removed, and there is now a nice long one-kilometer pit straight um, to increase the overtaking opportunities, because Imola was historically a track that was famed 
maybe for its the challenge it gave to the drivers as opposed to the um, as opposed to the actual sort of overtaking possibilities that would occur there. Um, in that case, the fact that the chicane has been removed means that there's definitely possibility for increased overtaking chances. But and even if the overtaking chances are limited, the driving challenge is something that the racers, the F1 drivers, would be very much looking forward to. Another interesting Philip to include is that this will be for the first time in a very long time a two-day Formula One event. So I imagine the plan for that will be practice one on Saturday morning, followed by qualifying soon after, and then the race, which should be make it should make for a very interesting spectacle because the teams will be able to gather less data. They'll be restricted in terms of the data they'll be able to gather because they'll simply have less time. So you'd like to hope that it would make for some interesting, um, very interesting racing maybe, some interesting, some sort of strategy calls that might come out of the ordinary because teams may not have as much information on what has set plan that may work. So it should definitely be uh, an interesting race there as well. So... Overall, these four racetracks, they're all they're sort of some have F1 history, some have no F1 history at all. So it should be very interesting to see what the drivers make of these, what the teams, in terms of like data they are able to take to the races, especially on newer circuits such as Mugello and Portimao. Whilst it's a big step into the unknown with these races, I think it's a very, very exciting step into the unknown in terms of what these circuits could bring in terms of the potential for racing and also the challenge that they all possess for the drivers. So... Whilst it's very sad to see races fall by the wayside, I think it's also fantastic that we've got new races coming in that can hopefully ha make, make themselves worthy additions to this different F1 Canada that we have in 2020. I wanted to put some context, by the way, about how fast um, Mugello is. Um, so Mugello... Yeah, I, 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 saw, I saw like an onboard testing lap and the, whoever it was driving, the bloke didn't like break hardly on the lap. Like. It's, it's so um, the, the, the track length, is 5.2 kilometers long and had a lap time what was that lap time you said angus 121 so it's probably so yeah, yeah so you're you're predicting 113 well monaco as we established a minute ago or so uh was 3.3 kilometers in length and currently that lap record is one point is one minute 14 so we're talking yeah. about a track that's two kilometers longer lapping perhaps faster than monaco and i know monaco's you know really it tends to be quite slow however that's you know the it's still two kilometers different so it's it's unfortunately it's it's in italy and it's not going to be favorable for ferrari and uh, i did see lots of people already preparing themselves to see ferrari not do very well in the any of the italian Grand Prix, which is a bit of a shame because there was a huge amount of pressure for Ferrari to, to win in front of their, their fans. So Formula One has returned this season. We all know this to be true. Hopefully it's the very reason you're listening to this podcast now. However, with the return of Formula One comes the return of its junior divisions of Formula Two and Formula Three. Championships where future multi-world champions show their potential and learn their trade. Name any world champion from Lewis Hamilton to Sebastian Vettel or a rising star such as Max Verstappen or Charles Leclerc and you can almost guarantee they were once upon a time part of a F2 or F3 constructors team. Liv, you've been keeping a close eye on how these championships have been progressing so far. Is there anything that fans should be keeping a particularly close eye on so far? Yeah, you're absolutely right. F2, in fact, actually describe themselves as the road to F1. They are very proud about the fact that 
so many incredible winners and champions from Formula One did come from Formula Three, Formula Two, and then into the main championship. So yeah, absolutely right. They are very proud of that. So as you said, uh, Formula Two and Formula Three have returned exactly the same as Formula One. They're the same three races, the same three tracks. Um, but there are some differences when it comes to the structures of the racing. So I'm just going to quickly go over the rules and how the structure of the racing is laid out over each weekend. So with Formula 2, there is a practice on the Friday and there is a quali on the Friday. So kind of like what um, Angus was describing earlier. Um, and then also there was two races, a Saturday race and a Sunday race. The qualifying is 30 minutes. And the fastest time, like or like qualifying that we know in Formula One, decides the fe- the grid for the first race. Um, the first race is called the feature race in Formula Two, and the second race is called the sprint race because of their length. So, feature race is decided by qualifying, and off they go. It is one hour, and the top ten drivers are awarded points. Okay, so very similar. The grid for the second race, the sprint race, is actually determined from the results of the feature race. So the top eight drivers in the feature race, their positions are reversed. So person who came in eighth will now start in first on in pole position for the second race. Top eight are reversed, and then from nine onwards, are the same as how they finished in the first race. So that's how the grid is laid out. The sprint race is, race is shorter; it is only forty-five minutes. And once again, the top eight drivers score points. Sorry, not once again. Previously, it was ten, and in the sprint race, the top eight drivers score points. So that's Formula 2. Formula 3 is very, very, very similar. Practice, quality, and two races. However, with Formula 3, the races are just called race one and race two. They're not feature race and sprint race because in Formula 3, race one and race two are the same length. They are both 40 minutes. Uh, The grid are decided the same way though. So um, quality determines the grid for race one and then race race one determines the grid for race two. Uh, the only real difference is that it's the top 10 drivers that get reversed rather than the top eight. So it sounds pretty complicated, but once you get the hang of the pattern, it's the same for both um, categories of racing. And and obviously they're on the same tracks in the similar conditions to the F1 weekends that uh, races that we've seen. So we can sort of get the hang of what the um, events are like. Um, each weekend is called a round because you can't say, oh, race one, because there's two per, per weekend. Okay, so they say, if I say uh, race, uh, round one or round two in, in the minute, then you'll understand what I mean. So before we um, look at individual drivers, which I will do in a moment, just hear this proof I've got here of how amazing the ever-emerging talent is in motorsport. So this is regarding first wins, so people having their maiden victory in their category. In Formula 2 and Formula 3, obviously there's two races for each category every weekend. So that's a total of 12 races we've experienced so far. Eight of those races, of those 12, were won by someone, by a maiden winner, by someone who's never won a race in that category before. Eight out of 12. So it it just proves how much talent is is racing through these categories and what, you know, we should be excited about what's going to happen next and who's going to come up to Formula 1. So eight maiden victories. But what other sort of stuff happened uh, in Formula 2 and Formula 3 so far? So I'm not going to bore you because I'll be here for literally ever. But before I talk about some drivers to look out for, I'm just going to summarise two key sort of pointers, two key big moments that made people look at um, the F2 and F3 and go, oh, damn, you know, that was that was exciting. That was interesting. So in round two, so that was the second race in Austria, 
Formula One wasn't the only event that was affected by the terrible weather. The F2 feature race was delayed by over an hour due to the unsafe track conditions and had a safety car start when it did go. Um, and that was for four laps they were with the safety car just while they were judging the conditions of the tyres and the track. Uh, the F3 race, the first race on um, the same day, was forced to end nine laps early due to the hazardous weather. This meant that only half points were awarded because they had not finished within 25% uh, of the expected race length. So only half points were awarded. And this was a great shame for a race winner, Frederick Besty. So obviously that they were the two other categories of racing were affected by that terrible weather in Austria. I, I did mention at the time, actually, to my family, it always seems quite unfair whenever there's poor weather. They they always seem to decide to throw the, the youngsters out first to test the conditions before they, they dare put the F1 drivers on track. So that always does make me laugh is the wrong word, but feel like it's quite unfair. But they did brilliantly. And despite having a few alterations made to their weekend, there was no um, injuries or anything or accidents like that, though. So that's good. Um, another thing to, to quickly mention is uh, the tyre degradation that happened in Hungary. Um, this didn't really occur in Formula One, really, and it didn't really occur in F3. But in F2, it was a very sort of odd spectacle. Um, in the F2 sprint race, which I said is the quicker race, the second one, you would usually expect the cars to go from start to finish without a change of tyres. It's a short enough time, and that's just how the sprint race works. They usually go with just the same set of tyres throughout. But for some reason, at the Hungarian Ring uh, last weekend, uh, sorry, the weekend before last, tyres were disintegrating so much that all but two drivers had to dive into the pits. So this is pretty much everyone suddenly went into the pits. And I was watching it at the time, actually, and the commentator was sort of going, oh, my goodness, if you if you don't usually watch Formula 2, like this is not normal. and This is not what happens in a sprint race, but that is what happens. So it might be interesting if anyone was, you know, had the time to look into why why that happened at Hungary and why that it doesn't usually happen and and why it didn't happen in Formula One. Um, anywho, just going to talk quickly about some drivers that we should look out for. I think that this is the most exciting part about looking into Formula Two and Formula Three, because at the end of the day, these are the stars that are we're hopefully going to be watching in the future. So, you know, you heard it here first. These names I'm about to read out. If they become world champions, <laughs> I'd like credit. So um, starting with Formula Two, <clears throat> We have um, Robert Schwartzman, uh, the Prima driver and Ferrari junior, is currently leading the driver's standings with a whopping 81 points. The second place driver is only on 63, so you can see the lead there. Last year in Formula 3, he wowed with an impressive three wins and 10 podiums and rightly earned himself a seat with Prima. So far in his rookie year in F2, Schwartzman secured third place in round one's feature race and his first win in F2's feature race, where he battled up the order from six on the grid. And finally, he won again in Hungary, having gained an impressive 10 places during the race and finishing 15 seconds ahead of the second place driver. That's a lot for a, for, um, a short race that they have in Formula, uh, Formula 2. This made him Formula 2's first double winner in 2020. So he really is a force to be reckoned with and I think a definite favourite for the championship. Um, second person to look out for in Formula 2 is Cal Callum Illot. He is another Ferrari junior and he races for Uni Virtuosi. Last year, after a successful F2 season, the young Brit was offered the chance to test a Formula 1 car, actually, and that was um, Alfa Romeo who offered him that. Um, he currently sits in second in the F2 driver standings. Illot won the first race of the season in Austria and finished a close second in Hungary's sprint race after a pit stop unfortunately caused him to lose the lead. As I explained 
very unexpected print, uh, pit stops there. He's inspired by six-time F1 world champion and fellow Brit Lewis Hamilton. I'm not sure if he's quite up to racing alongside his hero just yet, but I think he's on the right track, pun intended. Uh. Um, <laughs> on to Formula 3, two drivers I'm going to mention here. Firstly, Oscar Piastri, the 19-year-old Prima driver, yeah, another Prima driver, currently sits at the top of the F3 standings and has held on to that spot since round one. So all three of the rounds so far, Oscar has been at the top of the standings. He has an impressive 76 points heading into the next race at Silverstone with his nearest rival only on 50. So he's 26 points in the lead. Uh, Piastri, who was the Formula Renault Euro Cup champion last year, has won one race and secured two second places so far this season. Despite him claiming it's still way too early, that was a quote, uh, he is a strong contender for the championship title. Finally, I'm almost there. Finally, on to F3's youngest ever race winner, Theo Porcher. 16-year-old Theo has wowed so far this year with two race wins out of six races that he's competed in. Two out of six. Um, on both occasions, he was fortunately driving in third position when two cars in front of him collided and offered him the lead. So that happened both on both times. On the first occasion, he simply paraded home behind the safety car. So, you know, a great win, but not, you know, perhaps the fighting battle that you'd like to see. However, on the second occasion, he had to defend furiously to hold on to, to hold the position, but he did held, held his own and secured the win. He's done all of this at 16. So I just want to think, like, imagine what he'll be able to do at 20. Um, so that's kind of it about F2 and F3. I think it's really exciting. I do encourage all of you uh, listening and my fellow presenters to watch as, as often as they can. You know, it's, it is on, the, um, on Sky Sports now. And I'm actually really excited, especially about the four that I read out. Um, I think that we could see them there in the future, and I'm going to be pretty proud to say that I, <laughs> I spotted them, you know, really early doors. You're absolutely right, Liv. Formula 2 is the gateway to Formula 1. We know that the team principals and the teams watch Formula 2 with great intent because the racing can sometimes be better than Formula 1 because it's so much closer and to all intents and purposes the cars are pretty much the same they have the same um v6 engine as the formula one cars they don't have the electric uh, regenerative system and the extra horsepower that that provides so it, it just is a little um a little step down from formula one and it's just a, a, a good fun i'd also be interested to see whether or not the commentators also get the progression the formula three commentators go to formula two and they eventually go up to formula one as well so martin brundle and crofty watch out you know look over your shoulder because the formula two commentators might be coming up there most definitely i think we've seen progression quite recently insofar that it was only two years ago or so that george russell was in formula two i believe won the championship um, along with Lando Norris, he was down there as well. So it's quite clear to see that if you have a great season, you could easily, I mean, circumstances pertaining, but easily get a seat in a Formula 1 car. I mean, we're seeing at the moment Christian Lungard, I believe we mentioned him last episode, he's the part of the Renault Academy. He's sitting in third place. And you think to yourself, if the Esteban Ocon situation goes in a sort of southwards trajectory insofar that he's recalled by Mercedes... One would think he's got a strong case so far to take that seat in the near future. You mentioned George and Lando there. <laughs> there is no better proof of, of what F2 can do when you look at 2018's top three drivers at the end of the championship. It was George Russell, it was Lando Norris and it was Alex Albon. All three of them got a seat the following year. 
Like it is right there, the proof, and it's just so exciting because every time, imagine being an F2 driver and you finish in the top two, in the top two or three of your standings. Like that could mean you get a seat if things are right. If the, if there's certain, well, if there's a seat available, then you know it's it's so exciting to see. So I think, as you say, Tristan, the um, the team principals and the teams in Formula One watch the F2 races so so closely because. That is, they are who they need. They are the future of the team. Because at the end of the day, we love Lewis so much, but he's not going to be there forever racing. You know, he's going to get to the world. Same with Vettel, same, etc. So, yeah, let's be like the team principals and let's look to Formula 2 and Formula 3. And so ends another episode of F1 in Review. Thank you very much for listening and sticking with us as we've gone through four topics in this episode. Firstly, talking about Ferrari and their decision to immediately restructure the team's technical departments. Looking at Monaco, we didn't have it this year, but look at the history of the Grand Prix and potentially the future of it. We're very divided here in this virtual studio. Um, thirdly, we looked at the four latest additions to the 2020 F1 calendar. Angus took us through that one and uh, gave us some tips about where to look for and what we could uh, have installed for us in the future. And finally, we've just had a very succinct and comprehensive roundup of Formula 2 and Formula 3. They're, of course, ongoing simultaneously with Formula 1. It's looking very, very close in Formula 3, not so close in Formula 2. be interesting to see what happens to those drivers and constructors next season and beyond. Until next time, thank you very much for listening, and we'll see you in the next episode.